Thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. Good morning. My name is Roger Woodworth, and I'm going to fill the pulpit this morning for Austin. Uh, my wife and I had been attending this church for the last three or four months. Maybe you haven't seen us. Unfortunately, we won't be around much this summer because we have a summer cottage we hang out at. Um, I've been married to my beautiful wife for 53 years. I know I don't look old enough, but... We have uh, nine grandchildren from the ages of 12 to 24. Our pastor, our son is a pastor. Our son-in-law is a Christian singer-songwriter from Nashville. So we've been blessed with a Christian family. I'm also probably, to this group, infamous for being uh, one of Pastor Austin's seminary professors. Uh, You may know that he was an excellent student. I'm here to testify to that. So I'm a retired seminary professor and retired pastor, and I am really glad to be here this morning with you. So would you pray with me? Father, may you open up our hearts and our minds to receive what you would say to us today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you, our Lord and Redeemer. Amen. I've a played competitive racquetball for over 45 years. I'm, I'm still pretty good, but at my age, I lose more games than I win these days. And over the years, as other players discover I'm a pastor, many of them are, are a little surprised. But I'm sure, at least in part, it's because in my competitive nature, I will slip on occasion and I swear. Now, I never use the Lord's name in vain, but I have been known to cuss on the racquetball court. And the expectation, of course, is that a pastor would be far above all of that. What they eventually learn is that I'm just a normal human being, just like them, full of imperfections and shortcomings. The difference, as I eventually get the chance to explain to them, is God's grace. The same grace that I try to give them in our games of of racquetball. Well, here's the thing. Christianity isn't about gathering all the good people and excluding the bad people because, quite frankly, there are no good people. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But This is contrary to the image most people have of Christianity where we're often viewed as a judgmental religious club walled off from the rest of the world. Now, there may be some Christians like that. Of course, there are none like that here this morning. But it isn't supposed to be that way. Yet, Barner Research recently asked a group of millennials to give one word they felt best described Christians today. 85% of those millennials gave the word judgmental. 85% of millennials believe Christians are judgmental. I hope that, at least in part, was the reason why my racquetball friends were initially surprised to find I was a pastor was because I was hopefully not judgmental. And judgmental is what Jesus has been dealing with in connection with the Pharisees and the religious leaders in this series on Luke's gospel. 
They were judgmental of others, and they were judgmental of Jesus as well. In the preceding story from last week, it was the fellowship question, with whom to eat and drink. The Pharisees and the teachers of religious law asked why Jesus was eating and drinking with tax collectors and other kinds of sinners. And in today's question, it's the fasting question. How often to eat? So last week it was the fellowship question. This week it's the fasting question. You see, the serious religious folk believe that one's company demonstrated one's character. They also believe the spiritual discipline of fasting influenced your character. To the religious leaders, it appeared to them that Jesus would eat with just about anybody and was willing to eat almost anything. Even some of the people there point to John the Baptist's disciples who fasted a lot. So they asked Jesus, why are your disciples always eating and drinking? What these religious teachers and others had missed in listening to Jesus is that fasting doesn't do much for your neighbor. It's a very self-centered discipline. And Jesus was teaching about neighbor relationships. It was very neighbor-centered. Followers of Jesus are to be first focused on their Lord, and then they realize his focus is on others and their needs. Jesus had already proclaimed he came to bring good news to the poor, to set the captives free, and to give sight to the blind. Jesus wasn't acting like a, a religious person, but he was fulfilling what the Old Testament promised would happen when the Messiah would come. That may be why Jesus' answer to the fasting question is somewhat rhetorical. Let me read verses 34 through 35 again. Jesus responded, Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with a groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from it, and then they will fast. I hear we need to understand about weddings in those days. It was not an afternoon or even just a, a day of ceremony and celebration. It was an entire week of festivities with the finest food and the finest drink and, and lots of fun, lots of partying. And so for a friend or a family member to, to fast during that week would be, a rude, would be rude and an insult to the bride and the groom. Now, in fairness to the Jews, they were used to fasting. In the Old Testament, it was a sign of, of awaiting and, and, and lament, especially as it related to their longing for the promised Messiah. For us, it might be like waiting in the hospital for your best friend or cherished family member to come out of a life-threatening surgery. You pray and you plead and you hope, but rarely are you concerned about eating. That was the essence of the Jews' purpose in fasting as they, as they waited for the promised Messiah. But now those days had ended. Jesus, the Messiah, had come. The long-awaited Savior of the world was here. It was time to celebrate. The bridegroom has come. And the wedding feast has begun. The problem was their religious leaders had missed it. And even worse, they had turned fasting into something God had never intended Fasting had become a work of righteousness, a way of proving you were acceptable to God. Fasting had become a way of proving you were acceptable to God. In Luke 18, 11, we read about a Pharisee who prays that he's thankful that he's not like others, 
sinners and corrupt tax collectors. And besides, he fasted twice a week. All part of his righteous deeds to prove his worthiness before God. You see, this is what religion does. Not Christianity. Religion. It convinces people that the reason God likes them and accepts them is because they do some good things. They've kept a set of rules, and especially in comparison to others. They fast and they give and they attend church regularly. They're very serious religious people. Now, don't get me wrong. These are all good things. But here's the problem. How do you know if you're, all you do is good enough? That question, that doubt, is what pushes all the, the joy out of our lives. The striving to make sure we're, we're not like those other people. I may not be perfect, but as long as I'm better than them. You want to know why Jesus' disciples were eating and drinking like guests at a wedding banquet? Because they knew they used to be those people. But Jesus had convinced them that they didn't have to earn God's favor. Jesus had come in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy to become the bridegroom, the husband of God's people. Why then should the disciples not feast and celebrate? They hadn't yet come to fully understand the significance of Jesus' coming, but they knew enough to know it was a joyous event. Now, let's be clear about something here. Jesus wasn't then and isn't now against fasting. Jesus said in our text here, someday the groom, the groom will be taken away and then we will fast. This probably refers to the days ahead for the disciples when they would experience the passion of Christ's death and his burial. And fasting as a form of mourning would be appropriate. And as we wait in hope for Christ's return, it may be appropriate at times to fast, yet always remembering that we've been told that Christ is with us always, even to the end of the age, from Matthew 28, 20. And out of all of this text this morning, this is important. This is not a command to fast. We don't engage in any spiritual discipline, fasting or otherwise, in the same way the Pharisees did. To earn God's favor or to, or to set ourselves above others. To make ourselves out to be serious religious people who, who build divisions between insiders and outsiders. And so to make this point, Jesus goes on to give a couple of what I call patch parables. So let me read again verses 36 through 38. And Jesus gave them this illustration. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses this to patch an old garment. For then the new garment would be ruined and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. So you don't patch an old shirt with a piece of a new cloth. It won't match, for one thing. But if you wash it, the new piece will shrink and tear the old, and the, the shirt's ruined. And likewise, animal skins were used to hold wine and would eventually lose their elasticity. 
and new wine expands when it ferments, possibly tearing the old wineskin. You needed to put new wine, new wineskins, or that too would be ruined. Now the popular interpretation of these two parables is that Jesus came to do a new thing, and this new thing could not be contained in the old ways. The old must be discarded in favor of the new thing God is doing through Jesus. Now this interpretation has been used to start new forms of worship, new styles of churches, and discarding all the old ways of doing things. Has even gone to the extreme of some churches declaring they're only New Testament churches and no longer consider the Old Testament relevant. Well, with all due respect, I have a problem with that understanding. While it may be appropriate to change our styles of worship and other things at times, that's not the point of this passage. So let me read the final verse in our passage this morning that helps us determine and see this a slightly different way. But no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. Other translations say the old is better. The old is better. You see, the Gospel of Luke, along with other New Testament writers, go out of their way to associate Jesus with what is old. Luke's Gospel associates Jesus with what is old. In his gospel alone, think of the Christmas stories that fulfill the Old Testament prophecy, the genealogy connecting Jesus' ancestry to David, Abraham, and even Adam, and Jesus' first sermon in Luke 4, where he claims to be the Messiah that the prophet Isaiah spoke about. And here's the point now. You see, Luke is not claiming Jesus has come to do a new thing, but rather he has come to fulfill the old thing God has been working on forever. Jesus has come to fulfill the old thing God has been working on forever. It all started in Genesis 12 when when God made a covenant with Abraham, promising to not only bless Abraham and his family, but that through them God would bless all the families in the earth. It didn't mean they were better than other families. It meant that God had chosen them to be his instrument to bless others. Abraham and his family didn't earn this calling. It was given to them by God's grace. Did you hear that? God's calling to Abraham was given to him by his grace. A grace that would ultimately be extended to the whole world through Jesus Christ. So we must ask the question, so what is old here in this passage? God's grace is old. I mean, where did we get the idea that grace, the grace and love seen in Jesus Christ was a new side of God? From the garden to glory, it's all been about God's grace. The sacrificial system was all about God's grace for people who were sinners then. Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God didn't suddenly change when Christ came on the scene. God does not change. Too many people think of the Old Testament as law and the New Testament as grace. No, the Old Testament is full of God's grace. Always pointing to and foreshadowing the grace to come in the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. 
Jesus made it clear in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 that he did not come to do away with the law, but rather to fulfill the law. In other words, the law of the Old Testament is still in effect. Jesus came and kept all the law of Moses and the prophets on our behalf and then paying the penalty for our inability to keep that law. This was God's plan from the very beginning, the ultimate manifestation of his grace from the beginning of time. God's grace is old, and Jesus continues that old thing. So again, we ask, then what is the new? What is the new? Religion is new. The kind of religion that sucks the joy out of being a Christian, a self-righteous, dogmatic, legalistic religion, a religion that comes across as judgmental of others, making them feel inferior. And when you try to take religion and sow it into grace, or take religion and pour religion into grace, you ruin everything. Grace is old. Religion is new. And in this case, the old is better. I consider myself somewhat of a, an amateur wine connoisseur. I like good wine. And there's a difference between a $10 bottle of wine from 2019 and a $40 or $50 bottle of wine from 2014. Now, I can't regularly afford the $40 bottle of wine, so I settle for something in between. But I can't go back to drinking a $10 bottle of wine from 2019. I've tasted the older wine, and it's superior to the newer wine. And in the same way, once you've tasted the old grace of God made fresh to us in Jesus Christ, you'll never want to drink the bitter taste of old religion. So let me illustrate this further as we bring this to a close from Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the law of marriage no longer applies to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law and does not commit adultery when she marries. So, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you're united with the one who was raised from the dead. And as a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. So I want you to imagine with me for a minute that you're all married, including the men. I know this is going to be a little harder for you. You're married to Mr. Law. That makes you Mrs. Law. And Mr. Law is very demanding. He wants the beds made with military corners. He wants you to be able to bounce a quarter off the top of that bed. Dinner has to be on the table exactly at 6 o'clock, not two minutes before or two minutes after. The house needs to be kept immaculate, no dust bunnies under the bed, no dust over the top of the door mantles. He goes around with a white glove examining everything. It's an exhausting and joyous life. And you finally get to the point where you've had enough. 
And you decided the only way out of this marriage is to kill Mr. Law. So you start putting banana peels on the stairs, hoping when he comes downstairs he'll slip and fall and break his neck. The problem is here is that Mr. Law is holy. He comes from the mouth of God. You can't kill Mr. Law. So your only choice to be free from this marriage to Mr. Law is to kill Mrs. Law. You have to die to yourself. And when you do, you're now free to marry another, Jesus Christ. And your new husband will still have the same expectations, but if dinner is ten minutes late, you discover there's grace and love and forgiveness. And your love for your new husband only grows. And there's still a challenge remaining. Mr. Law is still around, trying to remind you how you've sinned and fallen short and not measured up. And that's when you run to embrace your new husband. That's when you run to embrace your new husband to feel loved and accepted, even with all your failings and your shortcomings. And you're reminded once again, time and time again, that Mr. Law can no longer condemn you when you're in the arms of your gracious bridegroom. It's interesting that on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit fell on all of those 3,000 people gathered, the people were amazed at what they saw and they heard that day. But some just scoffed and said, ah, they're just drunk on new wine. They're just drunk on new wine. No, not at all. They had been filled with the Holy Spirit, sent by the grace of God, as predicted by the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. New wine? No, thank you. I prefer the grace of a never-changing God who sent his son Jesus to continue that old grace, a grace that intoxicates us with joy that others can't explain when they experience it. And I pray that that joy would be ours today. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the grace that has been in existence from the very beginning. Thank you, Lord, that all that we see you created out of the overflow of your grace. Lord, you needed nothing exterior to yourself. You were fulfilled Father, Son, and in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, you needed nothing external, but yet out of your overflow of your grace, you created all that we see. And that grace continued, calling us before the foundation of the world. And at just the right time, while we were yet sinners, your grace was bestowed upon us and drew us to your Son, Jesus Christ, who forgave us of our sins, filled us with your Holy Spirit and made us a new person. Thank you for that grace. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's Supper, there's an extra measure of that grace available as we feed on these elements by faith. Your grace is available here at the Lord's Supper, at this communion. May we receive it by faith. May we set our hearts right with you before we take. But more we, may we receive through these elements all the grace that you would want to bestow upon us this morning.
Father, it's in that grace that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.